turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. As Dave said, we're all, both my church and yours and a couple of others are reading through the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation in one year. And I think tomorrow we wrap up the Gospel of Matthew and then Tuesday start the Gospel of Mark. And so up in Portland, we're still wrapping up the Creative Minority Series, but this is San Francisco. You guys are all type A. You have to be two or three weeks ahead. You just have to. So whatever, that's your thing. That's fine. Um, So let's talk for a few minutes about Jesus of Nazareth. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come even now and to give shape to the next half hour or so that we invest in the text as we open our heart and our mind and really all of our life to the voice of God as made manifest in the life of Jesus of Nazareth and the teaching from the scriptures. Just Holy Spirit, come. Jesus was a lot of things. Most of us know him best as the Son of God, but he was also the Messiah, or another word for that is the Christ, the long-awaited King of Israel. But if you were a first century Jew, and one Sabbath morning Jesus were to show up in your synagogue and teach from, you know, the Torah or whatever, the odds are that the category you would have put Jesus in was that of a rabbi. A rabbi is a Hebrew word meaning teacher. A rabbi was a teacher who would travel around from village to village and synagogue to synagogue with his yoke or his set of teachings on the Torah or the Bible of his day. And rabbis were kind of like rock stars in first century Jewish culture. So Dave and I were at the Coldplay concert last night. Anybody else? Yeah, well done. Fantastic. So um, I was there with all of your parents, by the way. It was just, (laughs) I know I'm dating myself. First thing I said to Dave, I'm like, man, where where are all the young people? Like, what what does that say about you and me? Anyway, um, it was a great show if you're 36. But Chris Martin has absolutely nothing on the hype of a first century Jewish rabbi. And that's what Jesus was, a young, brilliant rabbi or teacher. And this needs to be said. You know, our country is marked, as we all know, especially right now, by the polarization between the left and the right. And that's not only true politically, but it's also true even theologically. Depending on who you read, at least in the U.S., that goes back about a century, longer than that in Europe where there was this kind of split in the church and you had the liberals or the progressives on one side who emphasized the humanity of Jesus and said all the time, hey, Jesus was a teacher, but that was kind of code for he was a teacher and no more. He was a teacher like Buddha or like whoever, but not really, he was not the son of God or the Messiah or all of that stuff. And then the comeback from the other side was, no, 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 he is the son of God. He's the embodiment of the living God. And that was kind of the conservative tagline who put the emphasis on the divinity of Jesus. So you had, and still have to this day, a back and forth tug of war between left and right. And what this means is that if you grew up in the conservative arm of the church, like I did, then the odds are a lot was said about Jesus the Son of God or even Jesus the Messiah, but very little was said about Jesus the teacher. That aspect of Jesus' personhood was kind of just off to the side. And a lot of people don't even think of Jesus as that smart. It's like, yeah, I believe he was God, but do you think he was intelligent? Well, I I guess so. 
but he actually was the most brilliant, intelligent human being to ever live. And so Dave asked me to chat this morning about this idea of Jesus as a rabbi, and then on the flip side, what that means for you and me to be a disciple of Jesus the rabbi. And so just to clarify before we jump in, all that other stuff about Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, we believe all of that. I know I'm from Portland, so that, like, trust me, we're okay. We believe all of that, and you'll get into that in a few weeks. But for today, let's talk about this aspect of Jesus. So let's read a story or two. Mark chapter 1, if you have your Bible open, look down at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Turn the page to chapter 2. Skip down to verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And that can be translated, become my disciple. And Levi got up and followed him. Turn the page, chapter 3, skip down to verse 13 again. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, so all sorts of people. He appointed 12 out of that group that they might be with him, remember that for later, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name something or other, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, one more. Turn over to chapter 8. Just a few pages to the right. Chapter 8, and look down at verse 34. Then, Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now we could keep reading story after story, but I think that's enough for this morning. Did you see the pattern? Did you happen to notice it there? In story after story, the call of Jesus was not, hey, everybody, um, believe in God and believe this, that, or the other. Go to church once in a while, live a semi-moral life, and then go to heaven when you die. That was not the call of Jesus. The call was come and what? Follow me. Or another way to put that was come and be my disciple. Now, this word disciple in Hebrew is Talmudim. Can you say that? Talmudim. Well done. And, and there's all sorts of ways to translate it. Disciple is the most common. It can also be translated follower or student. But don't think, you know, follower in the sense of I follow you on Instagram or whatever. Or student in the sense of, yeah, I'm at university and I go to class and I take copious notes and then I'm done. It's way more than that. In fact, I think that in the English language, the word that best captures the idea behind Talmudim is this word apprentice. 
To be a Talmudim was to be an apprentice, to live your entire life under the shadow of your rabbi. Now, a little bit of backstory. Discipleship, and a lot of people don't realize this, was not invented by Jesus. So he was not the first rabbi to have disciples or the last. In fact, discipleship didn't even start in Israel. It started, as far as we can tell, in Greece with Socrates and Aristotle. All that to say discipleship or apprenticeship was part and parcel of the first century world. But sadly, you know, particularly if you've been around the church for a while, a lot of the time when we talk about discipleship, it's torn out of its first century Mediterranean context. So really fast, and if you're not a history nerd, just bear with me for a few moments, but let me frame up for you discipleship in the first century, because I think it has the potential to really reframe how we think about what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus in the 21st century, all right? In the first century, discipleship was the pinnacle of the Jewish education system. So there were three levels of education. The first was called Beit Sefer in Hebrew. It's a phrase meaning house of the book, and it was essentially a grade school. The textbook was the Torah, and you would memorize most, if not all of it. So Genesis, all the way, if you have your Bible there, just look at how much that is. Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized in the back of your head. It was an oral culture, and I say that to make myself feel better because that sounds impossible. Now. The vast majority of children were done right after that. Around age 12, if you were female, you would get married and start to bear children by 13 or 14. If you were male, you would go into the family business. But the best of the best moved on to a second level of education called Beit Talmud, or the house of learning. This was for young men, no women, ages 12 to 14. The school was built off of the synagogue, and you would learn every single day from the local scribe, and you would memorize most, if not all, of the Old Testament. So think about what you've been reading for the last, what, eight months, Genesis to Malachi, memorized in the back of your head. And then after that, you were done. But the best of the best of the best, the summa Kaulati, the Rhodes Scholarship recipient, the upper echelon, like the absolute top, would become a Talmudim or an apprentice of a rabbi. But this was really hard to get into. You would have to go out of your own like volition and search out a rabbi. You would follow him around for a bit. He would grill you with questions. How well do you know the Torah? What about you know the Talmud? Are you up to speed on that? Are you familiar with Rabbi Hillel's take on the Nephilim? What about Rabbi Shammai? Who do you think's right? I mean, he would just grill you to see, and if he thought, after a few weeks' time, if he thought that you had, you had a knack for it, you were smart enough, you had the acumen and the intelligence, you had the drive, you had the work ethic, you were type A enough, you were whatever, that you one day could become a rabbi yourself, then he would say something to you like, okay, come and follow me, or come be my disciple, come be my apprentice. Now, Let's say that you were in that top 1% and you made the cut and you became an apprentice of a rabbi. If so, then you had three goals. If you're taking notes, feel free to just jot this down. Goal one was to be with your rabbi. Think of that line we read, that they might be with him. So apprenticeship was 24-7, literally. You would follow your rabbi around from village to village, from synagogue to synagogue. You would spend every waking moment with him. You would eat three meals a day at his side. You would sleep at his side. I mean, all day long. There was a well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century that went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. 
because most teaching was actually not done in a classroom. It was done out on the road from village to village. And your rabbi would kind of walk out in the front at a slow stroll and you and I don't know, a dozen or so other disciples would walk behind your rabbi and he would teach you and you would talk and dialogue and converse and kind of more the Socratic method all day long. And if it was a good day, God bless you, well done. (laughs) If it was a good day, you would literally, by the end of the night, be covered from head to toe in the dust of your rabbi. And that was an honor in that time. Secondly, your goal was to become like your rabbi. So Jesus has this great line in the Gospel of Luke that we'll get to in a few weeks about how, quote, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. That was the goal. Every student, every um, apprentice of Jesus, the goal was to one day become like your teacher or your rabbi. That was the heart and soul of apprenticeship. You know, in our day and age, it's all about, particularly in a city like San Francisco or Portland, it's all about be unique, be true to yourself, stick out from the crowd, make a name for yourself. That's not the world that Jesus was born into. If you were an apprentice, it was all about become literally a carbon copy of your rabbi. You would not only follow your rabbi around, you would copy his every single move, you would imitate his tone of voice, his dress, his mannerisms. I mean, it sounds kind of creepy to us in the modern world, but it was how it was. You wanted to be him. And then finally, your goal was to do what he did. Did you see that line back in chapter three about Jesus? Wow. My, that's not a sneeze. That's way (laughs) more. Or maybe it is like a dog sneeze. We have a cowbell. We have a dog. (laughs) Welcome to San Francisco. That's great. Did you see... (laughs) Did you see, oh my gosh, so fun already. Did you see that line in chapter three about how Jesus' end goal was to, quote, send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons? That's what Jesus had been doing, preaching and driving out demons. And there was coming a time when it was Peter, James, John's turn to do the exact same thing. The whole point of apprenticeship was for you one day to become a rabbi yourself. After years, usually, of following your rabbi around Israel, if you made it through the program, if you made the cut, When you were ready, he would turn to you and say something like, hey kid, I believe in you. I think you have what it takes. Go and make disciples, if that sounds familiar. If not, you'll read it tomorrow, Matthew 28. Now, okay, so take all of that in your mind, history lesson over, flip it around from the first century to the 21st century, even an urban progressive city like the one you call home. To be an apprentice of Jesus today, you and I have the exact same three goals. This is what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. Goal number one is to be with Jesus. This is our first and I would argue most important goal, to be with Jesus. But how does this work now? Like, obviously, we're not Peter, James, and John. We can't literally follow Jesus around because, as we'll read tomorrow morning, at the end of his life, after the resurrection, Jesus goes where? He goes back to the Father, back to heaven, and he's there at the right hand of God. So how exactly does that work for you and me? Well, if you keep reading, right before that, Jesus has this haunting line. He says, I will be with you always, literally as he's going back to the Father. I will be with you always. Goodbye. I will be with you always. Goodbye. It's like this weird moment. And it's a bit confusing until you keep reading and you get to Acts 2, and then you read about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is also called, all through the New Testament, the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus. 
So this means, that's how we're with Jesus. We're with the spirit of Jesus. This means that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the spirit. This is like, if you're new to the whole Jesus thing, this is like, if there's a step, there's not really a step thing, but if there was, this is step one. This is the baseline for everything in the kingdom of God. I think of John chapter 15, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. I'm guessing most of you recognize this. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, or that can be translated abide in me, or stay in me, or live in me, or set up shop in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus' metaphor for how you and I are to be with the Spirit is that of a branch abiding in the vine. And I know like we're in a city, but Napa Valley is not far away, so hopefully like you have that image in the back of your head, a branch abiding or remaining in the vine. There's also, I think it's fascinating that it's metaphor at that point. You know, there's all sorts of language used throughout the Bible and church history to capture this kind of a relationship with God. So Jesus calls it abiding or remaining. Paul, as you know, calls it prayer without ceasing. So ongoing, continuous, 24-7. You're just living in the power and the presence of God. Our Catholic friends call it contemplation or contemplative prayer, contemplative spirituality. The medieval mystic, Brother Lawrence, if you've ever read his short little book, he called it the practice of the presence of God. I think that's actually my favorite language, because this way of living takes practice, right? Especially if you have an iPhone, or you live in the city, or you have to commute to work. Like, this is just not, at least if you're anything like me, it's not natural. My mind and heart and body do not default to, oh, like, that's just not... That's not like my default setting, like maybe that's just me. The philosopher Dallas Willard has this great line. This is, not to like overpromise, but this is my all-time favorite quote ever. Like I literally have it on the inside of my closet and I read it every single day before I go to work. He writes this. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. He's so kind about it, you know? But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. 
And I feel like I could just walk off stage right now. That's so, <laughs> don't, don't nod at that, by the way, but that's so good. <laughs> Willard's point is that, you know, living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit of God, you know, all day, that takes practice. That doesn't come naturally for most of us. This is where the spiritual disciplines, or what I prefer to call the practices of Jesus, it's what they're all for. Silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, scripture, Sabbath, on down the list. Every single one, the spiritual disciplines get a bad rap as legalistic, and that's people who don't have a clue what they really are about. They are not an end. Every single one is a means to an end. So if you're type A, you have the to-do list thing like me, every morning you have your Evernote and your to-do list for the day or whatever, the spiritual disciplines aren't on there, right? It's not like I read my Bible, I pray, check, boom, move on. The spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. All they are is a way to orient your life around abiding in the vine. All they are is a way all through the day, all through the week, all through your life to present yourself before God. God, you're here. In this time, in this place, I have not been here. I've been on Twitter, or I've been checking my email, or I've been in traffic, or this morning I was trying to get down the elevator and it took me 15 minutes. I was like I was in a movie. It was just this, I'm gonna go to therapy for it this week. It was crazy, literally stopping at every, whatever. I've not been with you. I've been somewhere else, but now I'm here. You're here, I'm here, we're together. That's all it is. That's the end goal. And man, I'm telling you, if you're new to following Jesus, this is the best part. The best part about following Jesus is Jesus. Every morning I have this little exercise, it's kind of my spiritual discipline to start the day. I just, I make my Chemex coffee. That's not the spiritual discipline. That is kind of a spiritual discipline actually. But I have my little Japanese scale and all of that and I do my thing. And then I take a seat, this little quiet room, and I just spend the first 10 minutes just with Jesus. I don't read my Bible yet. I don't pray even really. I'm just there. God, you're here. I'm here. 10 or so minutes. That's the beginning. And that's like nine times out of day, that's the best part of my day. Especially if I have sight glass coffee. Then it's like extra, extra good. But seriously, nine times out of 10, that is the highlight. The be that's the best part. This is it, you guys, just being with Jesus. Secondly, moving on. Our second goal as an apprentice of Jesus is to become like Jesus. Okay, I have a lot here. Out of that place of abiding in the vine all through the day, your next goal as an apprentice of Jesus is to become like your rabbi, to become like Jesus. So back in the day, this was called sanctification. Now, if you know the lingo, we call it spiritual formation. Again, Willard puts it this way, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Now, here's the thing you have to wrap your head around when it comes to spiritual formation. Spiritual formation isn't a Christian thing, it's a human thing. Meaning we're all being formed. To be human is to be dynamic, not static. You are all I am, we are all becoming somebody. I'm not the same person I was yesterday. And hopefully I will change and morph and evolve into tomorrow. You could argue that we're all disciples of somebody or something. The question is not, are you being discipled, but who are you being discipled or what are you being discipled by? 
or in more like I think New Testament language, who are you becoming like? If you plot the trajectory arc of your character forward a decade, two, three, four, who is that person? Is it you and your true self as shaped into the image of Jesus? Or does it look more like San Francisco or more like your job or more like whatever the end goal of your career is. I don't know about you, but I want to become like my rabbi. I want to grow and mature into the kind of person whose default setting is not to worry, but is to peace. Is not to anger, but is to love for friend and for enemy. Is not to pride, but is to the place of a servant. How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? Is not to the slavery of lust or greed or more, but is to the freedom of the way of Jesus. Now, to become like Jesus, to live this way, it takes a lifetime of practice. You know, last week, um, I think it was last week, you guys all read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or what is usually called the Sermon on the Mount. That's one of the most, kind of all the most important teachings of Jesus put into one place. It's kind of Jesus' manifesto for how you and I are to live as an apprentice in the kingdom of God. That's kind of the end goal. And as I read it, the Sermon on the Mount is not this pie-in-the-sky idealism. I mean, read it and read it again. It's messy. It's down-to-earth. Jesus is just assuming that you'll make mistakes right and left, that you will sin against people and need to ask for mercy, that other people will sin against you, even slap you on the cheek, that you'll get stressed out about stuff, you'll get lustful, you'll get greedy. Like, he's just, he's just assuming all of that, that you're a work in process, just like every other human being on the planet. But still, if you read it and you remember, it's a high bar. Am I right? But one of the problems, I think, in my opinion, with the church in America is we, made, we set the bar way too low. We made the bare minimum requirement to be an apprentice of Jesus way too low. A lot of people don't even try, read the Sermon on the Mount, don't even try to live into that vision, try to become like Jesus. They just assume, well, well it can't be done. But if you pay close attention, you notice that the Sermon on the Mount begins and ends with this idea of practice. So at the beginning, right before Jesus starts into the commands of, you've heard it said, but I say to you, there's this really odd kind of beautiful line. Next slide. Jesus says this, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever, and there it is, practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, literally the last paragraph, just about the last line, Jesus says this, next slide, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into what? Practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose. You know that story. Next slide. Uh, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into what? Practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the story goes on. Jesus bookends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. Meaning what? Meaning Jesus assumes this way of living is going to take a lifetime of practice. Anybody who's good at anything knows this, especially if you're an athlete or a musician. Like, you know, like to get good at your instrument of choice, your sport, or your skill, or your career, or you're an artist, or your craft, whatever, it takes a lifetime, years and years and years of practice. Now, when I say practice, please don't hear me wrong. I don't mean, and really listen to me right now, I don't mean, hey, go out this coming week and just try really, really hard to be like Jesus. Like, that will get you, if you're lucky, through tomorrow morning, and that's only because it's a holiday, all right? You won't get all that far. You know, Willard had this great line, it's not about trying, it's about training. 
And I love that. It's not about trying, it's about training. Uh, the best analogy I know is that of like exercise. So let's say, just for theory, let's say that you're out of shape and you're overweight. And this afternoon, for whatever reason, you decide you want to run a marathon. So, okay, how do you run a marathon? Do you wake up tomorrow morning on your day off, hopefully you have the day off, and go run 26.2 miles? Nope. What would happen if you tried? Yeah, what, what, you would die. Exactly. You would die. What if you tried really hard? What if, like, is there, like, somebody who's, like, super athletic around here that you guys all know? Troy? All right. What if Troy was, hi Troy by the way, it's great to see you again. What if Troy was there and he was like running next to you like, come on, he was giving you the pep talk or he was just, Dave was there and he was just anointing you with prayer and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like maybe you'd make it from mile three to like mile four, but then yeah, you'd die or you'd like, you'd die or you'd fall on the side of the like road leaking lung fluid or something like that. So how do you run a marathon? You wake up tomorrow morning, you run one mile. Then Tuesday, you run two, if you feel like you're up for it. Then Wednesday, you take the day off. <laughs> then if you've ever run a marathon, you know it's, you add one mile on to your long run every single week. So the first week, it's like three miles. And then the next week, it's four miles. And the next week, it's five. And then you take a week off. Then it's five again. Then it's six. Then it's seven. Over a long period of time, six months goes by, nine months, 12 months. One of my best friends is training for a marathon next fall right now. A year goes by. You're up to 20, 23, 24, 25, 26. Over a long period of time through practice. You become the kind of person for whom running 26.2 miles, it's hard, like that's always hard, but it is well within your capacity as a human being. The problem is that's not how most of us think about apprenticeship to Jesus. And it's not how most of us, and this is a criticism of nobody but me, teach the way of Jesus. So when somebody like me, if I stand up here and I say, hey, don't worry this coming week, that's the equivalent of saying to an obese person, go run a marathon right now. Like, this is San Francisco. You make it maybe to your car, you check your email, there's an email from your boss, and you're like stressed out. Like, you didn't even make it home. Or don't lust, or whatever. One of these commands from the Sermon on the Mount, most of us can't get anywhere without this idea of practice. So what it's all about, practicing the way of Jesus, one day at a time. We all have a gap between who we are and who Jesus is between the life we have and the life we want, between how we're set up now and the man or the woman that God created and called you to be. Apprenticeship to Jesus is about closing that gap one day at a time, just through this life-giving art form of practice. So, goal one, be with Jesus. Goal two, become like Jesus. Goal three is to do what he did. And this is much faster. The central message of Jesus was, the kingdom of God has come. Repent, the kingdom. I, I skipped that word because we don't like it. But repent, that was the summary, of, like you're going to read it tomorrow, in, in, or Tuesday in Mark. Mark's summary of the message of Jesus was one line. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, reorder your entire life around this brand new reality that the kingdom of God or the rule or the reign, the power and the presence of the God who made everything, it's breaking into human history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. So repent, reorder your entire life around that reality. Jesus' life work was to usher in this kingdom of God. 
As I see it, you can break down Jesus' work into 10 or so categories, and feel free to edit this as you will, but here's how I read it. Preaching the gospel, teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing justice, eating and drinking with people far from God, praying, prophesying, standing up against religious hypocrisy and pride, and speaking truth to political power. That's about it as I read the four gospels. Now, here's the thing. If you're an apprentice of Jesus, then your goal is to learn how to do all of that. And don't hyperventilate. Just, like, just stay with me. That's your goal. You're an apprentice. I was just in a conversation a few weeks ago with a guy who's new to our church who's an apprentice to a plumber. He just moved to Portland to go through trade school, become a plumber. It's a four-year process. So if it takes four years to become a plumber, it's probably going to take you a little bit longer to become Jesus of Nazareth, all right? <laughs> So just, that's not a slam on plumbing, it's a, yeah, anyway. Um, all that to say, he's, he, he's, a, he's an apprentice. So his goal four years from now is not just to know all about plumbing, it's to be able to plumb, is plumb a verb? I think it is, plumb a house. So you're an apprentice of Jesus. Your goal a year, two, three, four from now, a decade from now, four decades from now, is not just to know all about Jesus and the Bible and yeah, the year of biblical literacy and I read through the whole thing and I watched every single Bible project video because I'm like super weird and anal like that and I was at every single lecture and I know it all. That's fantastic. But once again, that's a means to an end. The end for you as an apprentice of Jesus is to get to the point to grow and mature over years of discipleship to Jesus to where you are out preaching the gospel and teaching the way and healing the sick and casting out demons and doing justice and eating and drinking with people far from God and on down the list where you carry on the kingdom vision of Jesus, your rabbi, your Messiah, and the son of God. To join in his kingdom work in San Francisco as it is in heaven. So, to recap, the three goals of apprenticeship to Jesus in the first century and in the 21st, it's really simple. Goal one, be with Jesus. Two, become like Jesus. Three, do what he did. I was on your website just a few weeks ago to listen to one of Dave's teachings that was fantastic, and I just got to steal a bunch of great stuff from it. It was really fun. And uh, I love that, like, right on your homepage, I love your kind of tagline, makes it sound cheap, but whatever, you're... Vision, a community following Jesus. And what's the second half? Seeking the renewal of San Francisco. I love that. Community following Jesus. But you know, I think we say that a lot. I'm not sure we exactly know what it means to follow Jesus. It means that your entire life is built around three goals. Be with Jesus, become like him, do what he did. Your life as, doesn't mean you have to become a pastor or work for a church or move to the other side of the world. Your life as an investment banker, as a mom or a dad, as a barista, as a designer, as a CEO, as a startup, as a whatever your thing is, you wake up in the morning and over every single other thing, the driving aim of your life is to live as an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as we wind down, I just want to zero in on that line that we read just a minute ago from chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple, take up your cross, come after me, follow me. Just a couple of thoughts on that. One, notice that the invitation of Jesus is to become a disciple or an apprentice, not to become a Christian. You know, in the text, there are two categories. There's the disciples, and then there's the crowd. And that is used all through the Gospel of Mark. It's a literary device used by the writer for you, the reader, to kind of think about your place in the story. Are you a disciple? Are you an apprentice of Jesus? 
or are you a face in the crowd? The problem is we've, we've done this weird number in America where we've created a third category that we call Christian. You know, that word Christian is used a meager two or three times in all of the New Testament, always in a negative light. The word disciple or apprentice is used 268 times in the New Testament. It's the dominant language for who you are as a follower of Jesus. And it's funny, you know, that word Christian, I'm not against it, but I think what that means for most people in the United States of America is that you believe in God or kind of basic semi-Orthodox Christianity. You go to church on a semi-regular basis, which might be like Christmas and Easter, and you're a semi-moral person. And that's about all that word means. It's flat and it's shallow. But we've created this third category where you can be a Christian without being a disciple of Jesus. I just want to say, in all love and grace, that category does not exist in the teachings of Jesus or the writings of the New Testament. You're either an apprentice of Jesus or you're in the crowd. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't really want to test it either. I want to be an apprentice of Jesus. Again, Willard, and I know I just keep quoting him. I feel like I should say this message was brought to you by Dallas Willard or something. <laughs> but I just feel like, I feel like he taught me how to follow Jesus through his writings. Anyway, I love this. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's it. So as you search your soul, as we move into worship in a moment, where are you at in that? Are you a disciple, an apprentice, or a Christian? And then notice also that this invitation is for anybody. Whoever wants to be my disciple. Remember, discipleship was for the best of the best of the best. It was not for whoever. It was not for anybody. That was an unheard of idea. That a famous rabbi like Jesus standing up in front of a crowd of who knows how many thousands of people and saying, if anybody wants to come after me and be my disciple, sure, take up your cross, come follow me. That would be like, I don't know, a famous professor today tweeting out, if anybody wants a full ride scholarship to Stanford, like just direct message me, no problem. You don't have a high school diploma, no problem. Just connect with me after, no problem. Like we laugh, that would never happen. This would never happen. A famous rabbi, Jesus, saying anybody can be his disciple, but I'm a woman. I, like, yeah, I can be his disciple, yes. But I, I didn't make the cut. I like didn't even make it to Beit Talmud. I didn't even make it to the second. Yeah, you can, like every single one of you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, what you've not done, what you know, what you don't know, how much you've messed up, despite of failure, in spite of success, you can be and are invited and called to be a disciple of Jesus. Every single one of you. And then finally, just notice that disciple is a noun, it's not a verb. We use it as a verb a lot. If you've been around the church a while, I get asked all the time, John Mark, who are you discipling or who's discipling you? And I'm, I'm a bit cheeky and I usually say nobody. Because you, you can't, it's... it's Disciple is something you are. It's not something that is done by me or done to me. It's my identity. It's your identity as a follower of Jesus. You wake up in the morning with that label in the best sense of the word draped over your shoulders. You crawl out of bed. 
you make your Chemex or whatever your thing is and you be with Jesus. You become like Jesus and you do what he did. Let's stand together and pray. (laughs) Always forget how noisy that is here. Wow. Let's just take a moment. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to give shape to this next segment of our time together. We know the most important part is is yet to come. It's in five minutes or 10 or 20 as we respond to you, respond to the gospel of Jesus, respond to the teachings of Jesus, respond to you, Jesus, the teacher, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Holy Spirit, come, have your way. We give you free reign. We open up heart, mind, life, future, budget, sexuality, identity, decision-making, relationships, family, marriage. The next 10 minutes, we open up all of it and invite you in as king to have your way to rule and to reign and to set us free. Holy Spirit, come.